Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this episode is something of a minor milestone. Not because it's the 10th episode of the podcast, that doesn't mean that much. No, what makes this episode special, I hope, is that I am finally reviewing Black Canary issue 12, the last installment of the monthly series that debuted in 2015, the series that largely prompted me to start a Black Canary podcast in the first place. My Black Canary fan blog had all but faded when DC announced that Dinah Lance would get her first ongoing series in over 20 years. In anticipation, I created Flowers and Fishnets, the Black Canary podcast. I spent the first couple months of that show reviewing random Black Canary comics, revisiting her first ongoing series from 1993, and generally figuring out what the hell I was doing with this new podcasting thing. In June of 2015, Black Canary Issue 1 arrived in comic stores. I covered that issue on Episode 13 of Flowers and Fishnets. If you want to hear how this strange rock saga of Black Canary began, go find Flowers and Fishnets on iTunes or the website blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. I continued to cover Issues 2 through 5 on Episodes 14, 16, 17, and 18, respectively. All of those episodes are still available if you want to listen to them. But then, my situation changed, I realized I was going to be joining the Fire & Water podcast network within a couple of months, and that felt like a good time to change the format of the show. This also coincided with a delay in Black Canary's release schedule, so I spent the last three episodes of Flowers and Fishnets knocking out my reviews of the 1993 series, which was terrible. Don't ever read that. It's worth mentioning that the last time I covered the 12th issue of a Black Canary comic, it ended my podcast. In the case of Flowers and Fishnets, though, that at least was intentional. If Power of Fishnets pod fades after this episode, something has gone terribly wrong. When this new show launched, as you're probably aware, I separated coverage of Dinah and Zatanna onto different episodes, so you can hear my reviews of the newer Black Canary issues 6 and 7 on Power of Fishnets episode 2, issues 8 and 9 on episode 4, and issues 10 and 11 on episode 8. You can replay all of those episodes to get the full story, or I can probably just summarize what's come before. Okay. The short version is Dinah Lance ran away from her life in the military when her husband, Kurt, was killed in action and she took the fall for it. Then she ran away from her life as a costumed vigilante when all of her partners betrayed her, and she in turn sold them out in order for Rachel Ghoul to bring Kurt back to life. Things got pretty bleak when Batgirl accidentally burned down their base, Dinah's home, with all of her worldly possessions in it. Dinah reacted the way any normal person would. She joined a rock band. A shady record label made Dinah the lead singer of a band called Black Canary. The group also included Lord Byron on drums, Paloma Terrific on keyboards and other miscellaneous boxes, Heathcliff as their put-upon tour manager, and Ditto on guitars. Ditto was mute and absurdly young-looking, but she was a wizard on guitar. Well, she wasn't exactly magical, but she was superhuman. 
During a chaotic and frequently catastrophic U.S. tour promoting the band's album, Dinah discovered numerous parties on their trail. Amanda Waller and her shadowy government agency wanted ditto for her powers, and she sent an amnesiac Kurt Lance to capture the child. Meanwhile, Black Canary's original lead singer, the volatile and vampy Bo Maeve, went crazy with jealousy and kidnapped the precocious guitarist. Bo Maeve traded ditto to Amanda Waller in exchange for getting the same type of sonic scream that Dinah has. The band eventually recovered ditto, only to discover, possibly, the nature of her powers. Ditto is an extra-dimensional being where sound manifests as lights, colors, even solid objects. A monster from that sound dimension came to our world hunting for Ditto. This led to a climactic concert in Gotham City where Dinah, Ditto, Bo Maeve, and Black Canary rocked out so hard they destroyed the sound monster known as the Quietus. During this whole confrontation, Kurt Lance was thought killed but was actually only displaced in time. He reappeared earlier, was able to capitalize on his future knowledge, and became the head of the very record label that put Dinah in Black Canary to begin with, knowing that they would have to work together and play together in order to defeat the Quietus. The strain of Black Canary's battle with the Quietus put a now very old Kurt Lance in critical condition. While this was going on, Dinah was being stalked by a mysterious blonde woman dressed as a white ninja. The woman revealed herself to be Dinah's Aunt Rena. She brought Dinah to Germany to infiltrate a satanic ninja cult and gather information about Dinah's mother, Dinah Drake, who used to be a martial arts instructor before becoming a dancer in music videos and eventually abandoning her daughter and disappearing forever. With the help of Batgirl and Vixen, Dinah learned that her mother went undercover to catch a glam rock star named Isaac Orado, who turned out to be a demon from another dimension that liked to kill women and drain their life essence. Isaac murdered Dinah's father, a private detective, when he got too close to the truth. Her mother, Dinah Drake, fought Isaac and used the Five Heavens Palm technique she'd invented. This immensely powerful blow damaged Isaac. It basically crippled the demon so that he couldn't conquer the world the way he wanted. But he survived the battle, where Dinah Drake apparently had not. The demon's spirit, rendered in twain by the Five Heavens Palm, took the forms of Isaac and a woman who looked just like Dinah Drake, calling herself Rena. Yes, Dinah Lance's Aunt Rena was in fact part of the demon, and only helped Dinah discover the truth about her mother's death so that the demon could learn the secrets of the Five Heavens Palm and put himself back together again. Isaac captured Black Canary and forced them to perform in order to draw Dinah into a final confrontation. Ditto's extra-normal sonic powers helped Dinah break Isaac's mental control. Dinah and her bandmates chased Isaac to his German compound where he trains his ninja warriors. But during the fight, the Rena part of the demon impaled Dinah with her sword, and our hero collapsed in a pool of blood. That is where issue 11 ended. Now I'm going to take a short promo break, but when I come back, I'll tell you about issue 12. Who here likes comic books? Who likes superheroes? Who likes superhero comic books? From the 90s! That's what I thought. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks, and though I've always loved superheroes, the only time I was buying monthly issues was during the much maligned 1990s. I've decided to go through my personal collection issue by issue, and in my own little way, try to answer the question, 
Were 90s comics really that bad? Chances are the answer will be yes, but I think these books deserve another chance and they're going to get it on 90s Comics Retrial, part of the Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and at 90scomicsretrial.wordpress.com. Black Canary issue 12 was published on June 8th, 2016. The cover by Annie Wu shows Dinah every bit as physically and emotionally frayed as her fishnets, with Mike in one hand and the mic stand in the other. She kneels down on the stage that looks like it survived a blitzkrieg, while tilting her head back to bask in the little remaining light that shines down on her. She may be setting the mic down on the stage, indicating this chapter of her life is over, or maybe she's just taking a breather after surviving an exhausting ordeal. Either way, there's a sense of afterclimax about the cover, and yet the unmistakable air that Dinah has not only survived, but succeeded. There's the faintest hint of a smile on her face. It's the look of relief and acceptance, and it is without a doubt my favorite cover in the entire 12-issue series. The story, titled Rock and Roll Suicide, is written by Brendan Fletcher, with art on the first 11 pages and the last two by Annie Wu, and the seven pages in between by Sandy Jarrell. Lee Loffridge provides the colors and Steve Wands the letters. Chris Conroy is the editor, Dave Walgage the assistant editor, and Mark Doyle the group editor. We begin as we did a year ago, with Black Canary on stage and the Burnside Tofu fanzine bringing us up to speed. The band is back in Gotham City, which, it should surprise no one to hear, is beset by urban violence. This concert is part of Black Canary's new tour to promote an album produced by Isaac Garado, the same demon music god who murdered Dinah's parents and then tried to kill her to learn the secrets of the Five Heavens Palm. Well, either Dinah and Isaac made up and become besties, or she's under his evil influence. Dinah takes a moment to address the crowd. She's dressed in a black body stocking with her left arm and right leg exposed, just so we can get some customary fishnets on that leg. There's also some feathers going on behind her head. It's a little bit Madonna, a little bit Lady Gaga, which, yes, I realize that's redundant. As Dinah thanks the crowd for their support, we see Lord Byron at the drums and Paloma Terrific at the keyboards. We don't see Ditto in any of these panels. Then Dinah tells the crowd that the tour is over, and this concert will be the band's final performance. Jump ahead one year. Dinah appears on a talk show hosted by Dick Cavett, or rather a guy named Rick Cabot, who looks just like Dick Cavett circa 1974. During the interview, we learn that Dinah left the band and her friends to pursue a solo career produced by Isaac Arado. Rick Cabot says that in the brief time he met her before the interview, she struck him as an off-duty superhero. They talk about Dinah's mother, the martial arts teacher, and Dinah's proficiency as a fighter. Rick observes that the world has been going to hell basically for a year and questions if singing is really the best use of Dinah's formidable talents. 
Jump ahead another year. A strung-out-looking dino wakes up in the high-rise apartment she shares with Isaac. She stumbles over passed-out fans and groupies to where Isaac strums an acoustic guitar at the shattered window overlooking the city. The people outside look just as strung out as the people in Dinah's place. Isaac hands her the guitar, telling her that music is the only thing they can bring to the world that has any meaning. Dinah strums a few chords. The notes coalesce into the shapes of Ditto and Dinah's ex-husband, Kurt Lance. Kurt tells Dinah she knows where she's supposed to be. Dinah tells Isaac she needs to leave this place, and he agrees. He thinks it's time to record another album. Jump ahead two years. Dinah's in a studio complaining to the sound engineer that there's a bothersome hum on the vocal track. The engineer tries to downplay it, says the phantom hum only adds to the greatness of her music. She insists the guy isolate the sound on the track so she can identify it. Then Dinah realizes she's hearing the sound even without the music playback. The frequency isn't coming from the music. It's the sound of the Justice League's teleporter beaming Wonder Woman into the studio. The Amazonian princess has seen better days. So too, apparently, has the Justice League and the entire world. Wonder Woman tells Dinah that something called Rave Death is gaining in power, so much so that the world's heroes are back on their heels. She pleads with Dinah to join them, to lead them, to use her martial arts to save the world. Dinah says no. She's not a fighter anymore. She's a musician. Wonder Woman pleads one more time, saying everyone Dinah knows and cares about will be killed in the war with Rave Death. Dinah turns her back on the princess to focus on her music. Jump ahead six years. Cities are on fire, but that hardly seems to matter to 36-year-old Dinah Lance, who has just put out a chart-topping dance album called Scream Heels. She's got a new producer, a new label, and a new sound. No more avant-garde stuff, no more grieving for her husband through goth rock. From now on, Dinah Lance is committed to churning out vapid hit records to anesthetize a fanbase that is suffering from the violence and death all around them. Jump ahead four years. Dinah is giving an interview in the back of a limousine that passes through crowds of anxious, desperate spectators. The interviewer asks about Dinah's most recent album, a shallow dose of pop bereft of heart and soul. The interviewer wants to know if Dinah will get back to the sound and style that first made her famous, when she sounded like a woman searching for something. The interviewer quotes a previous record producer who said Dinah had been in contact with her mother, that she found a spectrum of frequencies that allowed her to pierce the veil of death and speak with Dinah Drake, and that those five frequencies sounded like heaven. Dinah asks the limo driver to stop the car. She says it's not because of the interviewer's questions. She saw something out the window. The driver refuses to stop because of the crowd outside. The interviewer asks if Dinah knew her mother was still alive, that Isaac Rado hadn't killed her all those years ago. The interviewer asks if Dinah knew back then that Isaac would become rave death. Dinah doesn't answer. She looks out the window at the crowd, but all she sees are demons. Rave death. Jump ahead six years. Dinah's living in a lavish apartment that's the entire top floor of a building, complete with rooftop swimming pool. After 20 years apart, Dinah has invited Lord Byron and Paloma over to her place, the only building in town that doesn't look like a charred-out husk of a skyscraper from a Michael Bay disaster film. Dinah tells the ladies she's jonesing to put Black Canary back together. She snuck backstage when Byron and Paloma played a gig with Maeve. She wants to recapture the energy they had together, but the others aren't interested. Paloma walks out, and Lord Byron observes that Dinah's nice, fancy rooftop apartment feels incredibly lonely. 
Dinah asks her if she still sees Ditto, their old guitarist. Byron has no idea who that is. Jump ahead seven years. Dinah is now 53 years old, married, and pregnant. The state of the world has gone so far down the toilet that Dinah needs a special all-access badge in order for the elevator operator to take her to the Earth's surface. When she gets there, she's greeted by old friends, Barbara Gordon, Supergirl, and Wonder Woman. Dinah is thrilled to see her old friends, until they tell her why they've come. Wonder Woman tells Dinah that her husband, Oliver Queen, also known as the Green Arrow, had rejoined the Justice League. Supergirl recruited Ollie to help them fight the war against Rave Death, even as it was spreading to other worlds across the galaxy. Dinah is furious that her husband died alone in deep space when he had a wife and unborn child to think about. They tell her that before Ollie died in a space capsule, he sent a transmission asking the League to tell his wife he loved her very much. Barbara says she knows. So at least Green Arrow dies for a David Bowie reference. Jump ahead 16 years, which would make Dinah 69. <laughs> Despite the fact that she's really old now and old people are worthless, Dinah apparently put out her first number one album since Scream Heels, even though the news reports indicate the world is doomed and will no longer be capable of sustaining human life very soon. Dinah is eager to keep recording, but her daughter tells her to rest and puts her to bed. Dinah resists. She doesn't want to sleep. When she closes her eyes, her friends and family go away, leaving her alone. Her daughter says Dinah has never been alone. And hey, wouldn't you know it? Her daughter looks exactly like Ditto. Ditto whispers in her ear, Time is flexible. And Dinah realizes that all of this, her whole life, is wrong. She's not supposed to be old. She's not supposed to have let the world collapse. She was supposed to save Ditto and the others. She was supposed to fight. Suddenly, Dinah isn't alone anymore. She's surrounded by the spectral images of the band Black Canary. Lord Byron, Paloma, Beau Maeve, Heathcliff, and Ditto. They're all there, telling her she's going to be okay. Dinah feels them with her, and she hears that hum again. It's buzzing. It's shaking. A voice tells her it's the same frequency as when she uses her canary cry. It's her mother. Dinah Drake remembers how powerful Lil Dinah's cry used to be when she was a child, when Dinah left. That cry is the manifestation of an immeasurably powerful force, the vibrations of heaven itself. Dinah taught her how to channel that power, and now it's time Dinah Lance uses it to save the world. Dinah Lance wakes up. She's a young woman again, outside a ninja death cult in Germany with her band. Oh yeah, there's a sword sticking through her chest. Dinah pulls the sword out. Ditto puts her hand on the wound and stops the bleeding using the power of... I don't know, sound or something. The band embraces each other lovingly, with Vixen and her business manager slash kung fu master Sandra watching from the side. Isaac Arado and Rina, the two halves of the demon known as Ravana Hatha, or Rave Death, lead the ninja cultists in battle against Black Canary, the woman and the band. Vixen and Sandra dish out some brutal punishment on the ninjas, and Dinah's bandmates acquit themselves pretty damn well based on the limited training Dinah gave them back at the beginning of this series. Rave Death challenges Dinah to use the Five Heavens Palm. The power will put Ravana Hatha back together again, and in gratitude, the demon will grant Dinah's desire for fame and fortune. Dinah says she will unleash the power of the Five Heavens Palm. 
but if Rave Death thinks it's going to heal him, he's got another thing coming. Dinah channels the power. Each of the five frequencies appears as a different version of Dinah from different eras or dimensions. They punch out with their palm, a symbolic gesture focused and redirected as Dinah's scream that destroys the demon. It's pretty trippy, and Vixen sums it up best by saying Dinah beat an ancient kung fu demon with a sci-fi martial arts move her mother buried inside of her. Whew. Sandra says Dinah saved the world. Dinah Drake managed to split Ravana Hatha in two, but Rave Death still would have consumed the world if Dinah Lance wasn't able to use the power to destroy it utterly. Dinah says when she used the Five Heavens Palm, she saw alternate versions of herself, and one of them looked like her mother. Maybe, maybe that means she can still contact Dinah Drake somehow. Or maybe it just means her mother lives on inside her. After the battle, Dinah goes to the cemetery to visit the grave of Kurt Lance. She remembers their time together and the strength Kurt gave her even in the imaginary future. Amanda Waller arrives, not to fight, but to pay respects to her fallen comrade in arms. Dinah asks Waller if she still plans to come after Ditto. Waller acts like she doesn't know who that is. Cut to Dinah's final concert. She addresses the crowd just like she did in the opening of the issue, but she's back in her more standard stage costume for this series. And she's happy. She tells the audience that she's leaving the band, but Black Canary will carry on with their original vocalist, Bo Maeve. She tells the crowd how much she loves these women, and that no matter what the future, any future brings, Black Canary will survive. Dinah and Maeve perform one song together with the band. When it's over, Dinah walks backstage, trades her knee-high stiletto heels for a pair of rugged combat boots, and walks out the door. Who is Dinah? The Burnside Tofu asks. A singer. A daughter. A wife. A friend. A fighter. All individual tones of a complex chord. Each tone made stronger by those ringing with it, made stronger still by those against it. That's the power that fuels the voice of Dinah Drake Lance. That's the sound of Black Canary. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Doctor Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, 
Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah ha ha podcast. Coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? My first thought after reading this issue is how dense the story is, particularly in the first half. Any Wu style isn't built on big splash pages. She excels at layouts crowded with smaller panels that each manage to capture a singular idea that forwards the story. This is fundamental sequential storytelling, and it's often overlooked, but it's not basic, not for Wu. She gives each layout a flourish and a voice vibrating with its own energy. And because she's so capable at this style, she creates pages with 8, 9, 10, sometimes as many as 15 panels. Understand that in modern superhero comics, the average number of panels per page is 4 or 5. Any Wu doubles or triples that amount in the first half of the issue, and Brendan Fletcher doesn't miss the opportunity to pack those panels with added, but still valuable, text. The result is a comic that feels much, much meatier than average, to the point that I was shocked to learn it was only a 20-page comic. I was certain DC gave them a special double-sized finale to wrap up the story. Well, that didn't happen, but Fletcher and Wu and Jarrell managed to cram that much story into one book. That in itself is a big deal and a major plus for this issue. The creators don't treat this as a wrap-up issue. It's not an epilogue and it's not filler. I could argue there's more story in this issue than in the rest of the story arc. Every time we jump ahead in time, Brendan Fletcher gives us an entire vignette. These aren't snapshots of Dinah at various points in her life. Each one has a narrative of its own. We get exposition and character, who Dinah is, what she does now, what she wants. We get conflict, Dick Cavett, Wonder Woman, the media, all challenging her on her decision to walk away from the superhero life. We get world building and foreshadowing as we hear oblique references to rave death while the world outside Dinah's bubble crumbles and burns. Each one of these time jumps adds to the mounting sense of dread that Dinah needs to change her situation soon or the world is doomed. This also reinforces how important Dinah is to the DC Universe, or at least how important she should be. The writers of the various Justice League comics in the New 52 and Rebirth eras may not see Black Canary's value, but Brendan Fletcher never lets us forget it. Wonder Woman even appeals to her. She wastes valuable energy teleporting to Dinah's studio to plead for Dinah to not only help the League, but to lead it, to use her martial arts skills to halt the spread of evil. Wonder Woman, the ultimate warrior, the most powerful powerful hand-to-hand combatant in the DC Universe believes that Dinah's fighting skills can change the course of the war. The value of that praise cannot be understated. That's freaking respect. I get the feeling Annie Wu had a ball re-envisioning Dinah with each time jump. You can see glimpses of Madonna's storied career over the couple of decades, and I'll be very curious to see how predictive Wu's later designs turn out to be. I especially liked one of the first time jumps when Dinah appears on the Dick Cabot, sorry, the Rick Cabot talk show. Dinah wears a white pantsuit with a pimp cane that has a gold canary on it. It looks great. Somebody's got a cosplay as this. But it's one of the last times Dinah really looks beautiful and strong in these segments. In every subsequent chapter, she looks strung out or beaten down by age and or regret. The chapter I wasn't so sure about was when Barbara and the others came to tell Dinah that Oliver Queen had died. 
Up until this moment, Black Canary and Green Arrow have had no connection since the start of the New 52. Actually, even earlier than that, I think. Their pre-Flashpoint marriage ended around the time of Brightest Day. That felt like a conceit to fans who wanted to see these two characters together, or a preview to Ali and Dinah's renewed love affair in Green Arrow Rebirth. Either way, the moment felt undeserved and a little too little too late. Seriously too late, in fact. I mean, Dinah is in her early 50s when she gets pregnant. That's dangerous and kind of irresponsible. I think the only reason that part exists is to give us the moment where Dinah recognizes her own daughter as Ditto, and that emotional smack upside the head shatters the illusion of the fantasy life that Isaac Arado concocted for her. And that leads us to the second half of the issue. I've said before that Sandy Jarrell isn't Annie Wu, but in this issue he doesn't need to be. His pages are comparatively simple, and he does great work with them. Dinah wakes up, she hugs her band, and they fight some ninjas. After the exhausting life's journey Fletcher and Wu gave us through the first half, it's a little relaxing when Jarrell can just give us a page of kung fu action that's mostly close-ups of different participants and a few action panels thrown in the mix, all arranged like a stack of photographs that got spilled onto the table. There's enough of a variety to make it feel like the page belongs in this book without being terribly creative on its own. All of Jarrell's work culminates in the second splash page of the issue, the dramatic climax where Dinah finally uses the Five Heavens Palm to destroy the demon Ravanahatha. It's a great visual reveal, seeing five different women, perhaps versions of Dinah herself, striking the same point in the air and sending a shockwave through the demon. I probably squeed the first time I got to this page because of so many Dinahs. We see the contemporary one that we've been following. She's wearing black jeans and a black jacket over a gray shirt that, thankfully, is no longer covered in blood. To that Dinah's right, our left, we see classic Black Canary, that is, the original Golden Age version with the domino mask, the fishnet stockings, and the pirate boots. To that Black Canary's right, we get the new-look Canary that first appeared around the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths and the first year of Justice League International. This is the blue and black costume that some people call her Jazzercise outfit. I call it the Mockingbird outfit. Across the circle from that black canary is a Dinah dressed in a white martial arts gi with blue trim. She looks a little different. She looks noticeably older. It's definitely not the same look that Reno was sporting in the last couple of issues. These robes seem more ceremonial. Dinah later tells Sandra that she thought she saw her mother, so I assume this version is not meant to be Dinah Lance, but rather Dinah Drake. The last woman in the image is a bit of a mystery, and when I say bit of a mystery, I mean I have no idea who it's supposed to be. My first thought was Black Canary during the Mike Grell era of Green Arrow, when Dinah stopped wearing the costume. But at that time, she still wore kind of a black combat jumpsuit like Black Widow, not black pants and a black tank top. Also, this woman's hairstyle and facial features, I think, look distinctly Asian. I don't know if it was supposed to be another one of Dinah Drake's kung fu friends, but then why would only one of them be there when four of them are dead? If I ever see Brendan Fletcher or Sandy Jarrell at a convention, I'm going to ask them about this. Anyway, the spirit of that scene is clear and it's effective. Dinah has mastered more than just a fighting technique. She has found a way to connect with her past, and that includes the sense of legacy that was stripped from her during the New 52. Will that idea play out during the Rebirth era? I have no idea. The last three scenes in this issue feel like Fletcher shedding the dead weight of Dinah's New 52 continuity, including his own work on the series. Kurt Lance is dead and buried, freeing Dinah up to date Green Arrow or whoever else she wants without any of the ex-husband baggage. 
Amanda Waller seems to be out of Dinah's life, though that could always change depending on the needs of the story. Then there's the scene where Sandra McCanley says, I only trust what I know, and that's that you're a superhero, Dinah Lance. That seems to be reasserting the premise of the character. Black Canary is no longer a band, she's a superhero. This entire issue was about the world going to hell because Dinah walked away from the fight to become a rock star. Is Brendan Fletcher indicting his own vision of the character that we've gotten for 12 issues? I don't think he's calling this version of Black Canary a mistake, and I certainly don't think he's knocking his own series for failing to gain greater traction with the audience, nor should he. This series was always a gamble. The style was far from the standard superhero fare. It would never survive more than a year. Hell, I called that when they first announced the series back in February of 2015. This series was not a failure. It was a deviation, and I would argue that it was an essential one. It cleared the decks. It washed away so much stupidity and mediocrity that bogged Black Canary down for years. Fletcher needed to take Black Canary down this weird, crazy rock and roll side trip in order to get her back on the right path. And that leads to Black Canary as a martial arts superhero badass and one of the top-tier fighters of the DC Universe. That was Brendan Fletcher's plan all along, and I know that because I asked him six months ago. That's why the final scene is Dinah trading her stage boots for a pair of utilitarian flats. The band will play on. No one felt the need to kill off these valuable supporting characters. All we needed was a slight change of attire. Girlfriend needed new shoes. Dinah walks off into the night with a new pair of boots the better to kick some ass with. We're going to take another break now, and I will be back in a minute to talk about the music of Black Canary. Hi, everybody. I'm Chad Bokelman. You may know me from the Green Lantern podcast, The Lantern Cast. You also may know me from making promises across the comics podcasting community concerning a new project I've been working on. An Action Comics Weekly podcast, to be precise. Well, it's time to deliver on that promise. The Action Comics Weekly podcast is a bi-weekly podcast featuring myself and a rotating cast of semi-regular co-hosts discussing the characters appearing in the comic series of the same name from the late 1980s. So, starting this summer, join me and Mark Marble as we discuss Green Lantern. For all the people that want to give Hal when he was Parallax a lot of shit about the way he acted, <laughs> Sapphire has nothing on Hal for being like pushed over the borderline, because she's just completely friggin' nuts. Jay Jones as we discuss Wild Dog. He straight up, like you said, he, he murders these people, and that's, that's not my DC Comics, that's not superheroic at all. Batman wouldn't have killed anybody. But the story, this story is, it's its not bad. It's not great. It's its like the character himself. It's like, he's just, it's just there. It just exists. Ben Avery, as we discuss The Secret Six. So when I read this alone, as I was reading through this, this issue, I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> I, I told Chad I'd do this, but I don't know if I'm going to like this. <laughs> I, I do end up liking Secret Six more. This is the introduction, and without this, you know, I probably wouldn't like, you know, the, the second chapter as much. Doug Zavisha, as we discuss Dead Man. <laughs> well, it's it's a kind of a waffly Dead Man story. It wants to be a Dead Man story. It starts to be a Dead Man story. It forgets it's a Dead Man story, and then it comes back to being one, um, all in the span of eight pages. 
Alan Middleton as we discuss Blackhawk. That there's sort of this era of Blackhawk where he was sort of dissolute and sort of couldn't get civilian life together. Mm-hmm. And I think this story is either beginning that trend or at least tapping into that tapping into that fertile story. And Michael Bailey as we discuss Superman. There is really no way to tie this two-page strip into that. So it really exists in its own world at a time where the Superman books were becoming more and more linked. So it's this oddity on a number of levels. And many other characters featuring many more guest hosts along the way. The Action Comics Weekly Podcast. Coming soon, summer 2016. Find us on Facebook for more details. Back in March, DC did something kind of extraordinary to promote Black Canary in the first trade paperback of the series, Black Canary Volume 1, Kicking and Screaming. They actually released a three-song EP for digital purpose or streaming credited to the Black Canary band. You could find the music on several websites, the first being a page within DC Comics' official website. The page described the band, it gave character bios for the band members, the fictional tour dates and locations mentioned in the series, and a way to stream the music itself. There was also a website called blackcanary.bandcamp.com where you could pay to download the songs. The three-song EP, which is simply titled EP1, includes two original songs and one cover. They are officially credited to the fictional Black Canary Band and its lineup, DD, Screams and Kicks, Paloma Terrific, Electronics, Lord Byron, Rhythm and Shoes, and Ditto, Axe. In truth, the two original songs, titled Fish Out of Water and Old World, were co-written by Brendan Fletcher and Joseph Donovan. Donovan is a producer and a member of the band The Receivers. While Fletcher wrote the lyrics for Fish Out of Water and Old World, Donovan wrote the music, performed the electronics, and produced the tracks. They brought in Michelle Ben-Simon, the lead singer and guitarist of the band Caveboy, to provide additional guitar licks and serve as the voice of Black Canary on EP1, which includes the third song, a cover of an old Bauhaus track called The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. I purchased EP1 as soon as I heard about it. I thought it was a fantastic idea, and I'd been hoping that someone would come up with a fantasy Black Canary band to provide a soundtrack for the series, but I never actually believed it would happen, let alone that it would be officially released by DC. The only real disappointment with the EP is the lackluster and uncreative title EP1, all the more glaring given the unlikelihood we'll ever get a follow-up. The music itself is very electronic-based. I expected something a lot more punk rock-ish, like a Joan Jett type, but I am not disappointed in the product. I like every song, especially the two new ones, mostly the two new ones. Old World blows me away. That song can go on any playlist as far as I'm concerned. I have seen too much.
I know this isn't the first case of a comic book inspiring official music like a soundtrack to the book, but it still feels momentous, and the fact that it's for Black Canary is something truly special and groundbreaking. I wish we got more than an EP. I wish we got an entire album. I wish the series was allowed to continue and take Dinah Lance in a new direction as the girl gladiator she was meant to be when Robert Kaniger and Carmen Infantino created her 69 years ago. As a personal note, I want to thank Brendan Fletcher, Annie Wu, Pia Guerra, Sandy Jarrell, Moritat, Lee Lofridge, Steve Wands, Dave Wilgosh, Chris Conroy, and Mark Doyle for all of the work they put into making this series so special. This book took risks right up until the very end. Issue 12 was very unconventional, very experimental. I recognize why that turned off a lot of potential readers right from jump, but those of us who stuck with the series found something unique and memorable and entertaining in this comic book. To all of you who worked on the book and everyone who supported Black Canary, take a bow. That's all for this episode of Power of Fishnets. I know I haven't been very thorough when it comes to doing listener feedback on the Black Canary episodes, and for that, I apologize. I do truly appreciate every comment that gets submitted and every retweet and like that I get on social media. I'm going to try and address some of your comments on the next even-numbered episode. Next time the show drops will be yet another important conclusion as we wrap up Zatanna's search for her father. That'll be Power of Fishnets episode 11, And then for episode 12, I'm going to cover two different origin stories, the first published origins for both Zatanna and Black Canary, each written by one of my favorite comic book writers, Jerry Conway. That is all coming up later this month, but until then, let's rock out to some Black Canary one last time. Power Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at Black Canary Fan, or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.